you have a Bible this morning, uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy, and let's go to chapter 1. And as I mentioned in our prayer, we're going to look at sound doctrine. When you come to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then the book of Titus, these in Scripture are called pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. Now, so many times because we hear the term pastoral letters, uh, so then those that are not in ministry uh, don't read these letters. And yet this morning, if you're a husband, you're a wife, you have children. We all have responsibilities. Those of us maybe that you're not married, eventually one day you will be married. Lord willing, and you're going to be responsible to your household. And so we can use this as leadership training. It's important that we know the Word of God. It's obvious, as Paul's writing this letter, that there were problems in the early church. Timothy is there at Ephesus. Many believe that uh, he was the pastor of the church. Historically and traditionally, we know that he eventually becomes the bishop of the church. But there were problems there. And so Paul writes this letter and 2 Timothy, and then he writes to Titus concerning the heirs in the early church. The attacks of the false teachers, the false prophets that were coming in with their own doctrines. And generally, basically, they were saying, Jesus is okay, but we need Jesus plus. Be careful when we add to Christ, when we add to the Word of God. And then you had the religious sect. So you had the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And basically, they were teaching the law and nothing else. And if they were to look at the law, the law was pointing to the cross, that Jesus would become that complete sacrifice. Now, as we always do... In a new book study, I want to give you some background, and so we want to talk about the letter itself. Now, the author we know of the letter is Paul the Apostle. We know in Scripture that Paul wrote at least 13 epistles. Most likely, he wrote the 14th epistle, which is also the book of Hebrews. The purpose and who this was written to, it was written to First and Second Timothy, uh, to Timothy, and then also to Titus and to Philemon. We see these were personal letters. Philemon is a very intimate letter that Paul wrote to a, a dear friend. But now Paul's writing directly uh, to Timothy, and then we're going to see as we finish First and Second Timothy, he's going to write directly to Titus. Generally, Paul was writing to churches, groups of churches. When he wrote to the Galatians, it's the, the churches in Galatia. But here he's writing to an individual such as Timothy. Now, the date of the, of the writing of the letter, generally there's always some discrepancy here. It's believed that Paul was released from his first imprisonment around 64 A.D. Somewhere in between 64 A.D. and 66 A.D. is believed that Paul wrote 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Some believe that Paul was imprisoned a second time in Rome, and then he wrote uh, these epistles. We don't know. But we do know this, that shortly after these three epistles, Paul was beheaded. The second time he goes up before Nero, the first time Nero gave him audience. We know that historically. But the second time, Paul was beheaded. In fact, some scholars believe that Nero was even demon-possessed. Remember uh, that he caused all the fires and he blamed uh, the Christians. 
Now, the letter is written from Rome. It's possibly uh, during right before the second imprisonment or the actual second imprisonment. And then Nero has him beheaded. But let me give you the theme now. First and second Timothy and Titus, as we mentioned earlier, they're called pastoral epistles. These last letters, these last epistles to encourage the church, the body of Christ. Because false teachers were coming in. False doctrine was coming in. And so here we are, 1950 plus years later, and we still have to deal with false teachings and false teachers. The purpose was to encourage. Encourage to teach sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine. Doctrine that comes from the Word of God. Doctrine that will build the body of Christ. Now Paul's going to encourage church government, church conduct, pastoral and church instruction and order. But I want you to turn with me, leave a marker there. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. It's believed that this is the key verse of this beautiful epistle. Again, Paul writing to young Timothy. He was a young pastor. He had so much to learn, and Paul had a beautiful relationship with Timothy. He calls him, you know, the son uh, that he never had, the son in the spirit. And so 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, remember he's encouraging. We read that Paul writes, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. When you confessed your good confession in the presence of many witnesses... So Paul knew in his heart that he had to warn Timothy. He knew in his heart as the Holy Spirit had spoken to him because Paul was limited in time. I believe that the Holy Spirit shared with Paul, you are soon going to die. And so Paul knew that there were these false teachers. And it used to bother Paul, so he writes this beautiful letter. And he's going to encourage and as we see uh, the topic this morning, sound doctrine. But let me give you a little bit of background on who Timothy is, because it's important. If you understand the name Timothy, in the Greek it's Timotheus. And the Greek word means to venerate God, dear to God, honored of God. So even in his name, we see the calling of this young man. Now, Timothy was a native of Lystra. We read that in the book of Acts chapter 16. But here's an interesting take on Timothy. His mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, both were Jewish women. We read that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Timothy's father was not a Jew, but he was Greek. And so we read about Timothy's father, and, and really there's no mention of his father other than we see that he was Greek through his father. We find that in Acts chapter 16, verse 1 and verse 3. There are those that say uh, Timothy's dad passed away or that he left the family. But notice that his mother and grandmother raised him in the ways of the Lord. And so that's important that if, you know, one is not doing the work that the other would take over and to train up this child in the ways of the Lord. Now, Timothy, as a youngster in his early teens, joined a Paul in ministry around 51 AD during Paul's second missionary journey uh, there at Lystra in Acts chapter 16. Timothy was a convert of Paul's ministry. We find that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. We'll read that this morning. He was called a, a, a child that Paul had nurtured there. 
and that Paul actually just fell in love with this kid. But it was because of the training of mom and, and grandmother that was so important here. Now, what's interesting, Timothy's mom and grandmother taught him the scriptures since he was a child. We read that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But moms, dads, I want you to hear this verse this morning. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And this is an encouragement to us. The proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, in the way she should go. And when he is old, when she is old, they will not depart from the truth, basically. The word to train up a child is the word to dedicate. And that's what we did uh, with Trinity this morning. Uh, the word to train up a child is to discipline that child in the ways of the Lord. I shared this with the first service. You come into the service on Sunday morning. You bring your son. You bring your daughter. And we take them into the back. And basically, we have your children for about an hour and a half. You come on Wednesday night. Again, we have them for about an hour and a half. We don't have a Sunday night service, but in times when we have a Sunday night service, we'll open up the children's ministry in the back. And again, we'll train them for an hour and a half. But the question is, what happens the rest of the time? The responsibility of the training of the children is not the church's responsibility. We'll train them when they come. But what are they getting at home? Are you dedicating them to the Lord? Are you disciplining them in the Word of God? It's important that you raise them up in God's Word and knowing God. We have a generation of young people today that don't know God. We have a generation of people that don't know Scripture. And so it's important for us to train up a child in the way he should go and the way she should go. Now, again, concerning Timothy's life, as a young teen, because he was half Jew and half Greek, his dad did not make him uh, to be circumcised. And so Paul circumcised Timothy after conversion in order to take him into Gentile cities. We find that in Acts chapter 16. Yet, when we get to the life of Titus, he was all Greek. And he chose not to be circumcised, and Paul did not put the pressure on him. Paul took him into ministry. And see, our freedom in Christ. Now, Paul was very learned in the Old Testament scriptures, and he obeyed the law of Abraham that was given to Abraham concerning circumcision. But when he comes to saving grace, Paul says we're free in Christ. We begin here in 1 Timothy. we got some background now. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is the introduction. And Paul usually gives an introduction. He usually gives a greeting. It's usually short, and it's to the point. But Paul always gives his credentials. And then we're going to get into the encouragement concerning sound doctrine. So look at verse 1 with me. And so Paul gives the introduction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I like what he says here. Our hope. The word apostle is important. It is apostolos in the Greek. And an apostle was basically an ambassador for Christ. A representative of Christ. And Paul says here, he was appointed by Jesus Christ, by the commandment. The word commandment is by the authority of God. And so Paul would often be asked that question. And what authority do you come and speak to us? 
and the authority that God has called me to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when we speak of an ambassador, if you're an ambassador to the United States of America, wherever you would go, you would represent our country. So this morning, we're Christians. We have a responsibility, not just Paul the Apostle, but we're all ambassadors of Christ. Wherever I go, wherever you go, I represent Christ, if I call myself Christian. So how do I represent him at school? How do I represent him at work? How do I represent him at home? How do I represent Christ as I go see family, friends, and loved ones? Do they see Jesus in me? And so Paul here is an ambassador of Christ. He's called by the authority of God, our Savior. And then he uses the word Lord here. The word Lord is kurios. The word kurios means our master, our authority, one who has rule over me, one who has rule over you, one who has rule over Paul, over Timothy, over Titus. Now, you see, in our society, as we're growing up, we don't like to be the master of anybody. I don't want somebody to master my life. And yet in the world... I was a master to uh, the elements of the world. I was a master to, you know, drugs, alcohol, sexual perversion. Whatever the sin nature was, I was, that's masters. I was the master of that sin, that is. We don't like the word slavery. And so Paul often called himself a slave, a bond slave, or as he told uh, Philemon, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We don't like the terminology slave. I don't want to be a slave to nobody. But I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to the world. I was mastered by my sin. I was mastered by, you know, the world. So now I come to Christ. And I desire to be governed by him, ruled by him. That's why we call ourselves Christian. And then I like what Paul does here. At the conclusion, notice that Paul not only gives Jesus Christ deity and supreme rule over us, then Paul describes Jesus Christ as our hope. I like that. Paul was directing this to Timothy. Timothy was struggling. There were these that were attacking the early church. And so he tells them, listen, our hope is in Christ. Look at the things that we see today. All we got to do is turn on the news. I mean, I don't understand how a person can survive in our society today with everything that's going on unless you know Christ. Unless you have that relationship with Christ. Because the enemy's out there trying to destroy. So my hope is not in the United States government. My hope is not in the church. My hope is in Christ. Because sometimes the the church can lead you astray. What does the Word of God have to say? What does Jesus have to say? There's a beautiful verse. Just take it down. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul speaks to the Colossians about the mystery. He says, the mystery among the Gentiles, and here's the mystery, that Jesus Christ in you, that relationship, that born-again experience, the hope of glory in John 14, 6, probably one of the most radical scriptures. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to my Father unless he goes through the cross. It's interesting. Through the years, 
I hear people, and they want to get to God, but uh, under the cross, around the cross, over the cross, but they refuse to go through the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it's a radical statement. And so it's often been said, Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or Jesus is Lord. And that's a determination that we must make. That's something that we have to grasp with. And if Jesus is Lord and he died for me, then I need to accept him as Lord and Savior. Now the second part of the greeting, verse 2, to Timothy. And here's where he describes this intimacy, this relationship. To Timothy, a true son in the flesh. Paul never had children. There's no mention of children. In fact, Paul most likely was married because he was in the Sanhedrin, but his wife possibly left him, or she divorced him, or she passed away. And so the direction here to Timothy, a true son in the faith, and then these words of encouragement, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I like this relationship that Paul has already established with Timothy. As a young spiritual son in the Lord, the phrase, a true son in the faith, the King James says, my own son in the faith. Timothy was Paul's protege in ministry, his spiritual offspring, if you may. And this personal letter to Timothy to encourage him there at Ephesus. He writes to Titus to encourage him. But notice that Paul uses the words grace, mercy, and peace. Then he says, all this is from God, our Father. That relationship. He's not just my father, Paul says. But our father, it's not just Paul's father, it's not just Timothy's father, but it's our father if we've come to the born-again experience. That's the relationship that we can have with our Lord. And, and such a beautiful picture here now. And so he goes on here concerning this personal relationship. And then he says, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, our personal master, as we shared earlier, our personal savior. And so Paul and Timothy, both servants of the Lord. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace. The word grace is unmerited favor. I deserve judgment, but God gives me grace. Now listen to the word mercy. In most letters, Paul just uses mercy. He doesn't use mercy. He just uses basically grace and peace. But here he includes mercy. Mercy speaks of instead of judgment, God gives me mercy. The word mercy speaks of compassion. And because I have unmerited favor, I've come to saving grace. And because I have been given mercy, this compassion from God, I've come to a relationship. Now I have this peace. Because I'm saved, because Paul's saved, because Timothy's saved, I have this peace. And we've shared this many times. You see, the world's always looking for peace. And I, I look at the news, you look at the news, and, and basically you'll hear a general, listen, we're going to get peace in this region, even if, it, even if it means war. And we know that the peace in the world is temporal. The peace in the world is plastic. Basically, it's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. But Jesus, in our salvation, he gives us the peace that passes all understanding. Now, I like this word peace. 
I come to Christ, and the word peace, he gives me rest. I come to Christ, the word peace, and he gives me quietness. I find this solitude in Christ because he has saved me. So again, Paul often used grace and peace in the greeting. But he adds here in verse 2, the word mercy. Again, uh, one commentary said something interesting. The word mercy, he says, justice is getting what we deserve, but mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting the blessing we don't deserve. This is what God bestows upon us, church. And so Paul finishes this short greeting, and we come into verse 3 now. And I want you to pay attention to verse 3. Uh, Because it begins here, this exhortation, the purpose of the letter. You had the false prophets, the false teachers. You had these religious sect that was coming in. They were undermining the teachings of Christ, undermining what Paul was establishing in these churches. And here we are, as I mentioned earlier, 1950 plus years later. And they're still undermining. What does the word of God have to say? And so Paul encourages, there's no other doctrine. But Jesus Christ, and listen to this. Here's the full doctrine of Christ. Jesus Christ crucified, died, buried, and then he resurrects, and then he ascends into heaven. Be careful when man comes to you with a new doctrine. Be careful when man comes to you with a new revelation. You have your book in front of you. You have your Bible. It's 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. I cringe when I hear somebody say, well, there's a new doctrine. Really? Well, somebody, you know, in in such and such town and, and state, they received the new revelation again. Oh, really? What happened to the old book? Are we tired of it? You know, there's another group that's always looking for the lost books of the Bible. I have commentaries in my office, and and they'll describe the lost books in the Bible. And you're not always going to find those lost books. But again, we have the complete Bible. We have 66 books. But what if somebody finds a lost book? Well, what if Paul said something different in that lost book? You see what we're doing? Just like a good lawyer, we're looking for a loophole. Well, listen, Paul said, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But maybe in one of those lost books, hey, go for it, man. Get high. Don't worry about it. Don't listen to Paul. And so that's basically what man looks for. Well, Paul taught uh, fornication was a sin. Well, so we find this new book, and it says, listen, it's your body. Do what you want. And so that's what man's always looking for. And so Paul is encouraging here. And he begins in verse 3, as I urge you, when I went to Macedonia, he's speaking to Timothy, remain in Ephesus, Timothy, that you may charge some that teach no other doctrine. I like this. We know in the book of Acts that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. We know that in Acts chapter 20, Paul gives his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. He indicates here that he left Timothy there. Paul says, charge those, Timothy, who teach a different doctrine. Charge those that teach a different doctrine. The Greek translation for the word charge, he says, come alongside and charge these men. The word to charge, command these men not to teach no other doctrine. 
there was groups of people that were undermining the teachings of Christ. The false teachers were the Judaizers. The Judaizers had accepted Christ, but they wanted to remain in Judaism. And so they said, Jesus plus. And basically, Jesus plus, and you need to be circumcised. Jesus plus, you need to honor the dietary laws and the meat laws. Jesus plus, and you have to keep the feast day laws. And the list goes on. And so basically, they never come out of the Old Testament. And if you look at the Old Testament, it's pointing to the cross. So Paul tells them, come alongside these false teachers and teach them the Word of God. You see, circumcision is not needful. Again, Timothy chose to be circumcised, but Titus chose not to be. The meat and the dairy laws and the feast day laws and the list would go on. And then what happens is you can't conform to one. you got to do them all. You see, Paul preached after he finally comes to saving grace. The Old Testament and the New Testament comes together for Paul. And Paul knew now that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul preached Jesus Christ crucified, died, buried, resurrected, and then the ascension into heaven. Period. That's it. Be careful when men try to add to the Word of God. Listen to this. Be careful when men try to take away from the Word of God. There's a beautiful verse that I love and I've taught many times. You can write it down if you must. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul is speaking to the church at Rome. And I love this. He speaks about the simplicity of salvation. You see, there's too many different roads that people say lead to God. But Paul simply says, go to Christ. And listen to Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Paul says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Period. Done. It's a done deal. The simplicity of the gospel. But brother, you don't understand. You got to put on a suit. You got to put on a tie. Brother, you don't understand. You know, you got to do this. You got to. And people just love to do that. Why is it that God can't just simply save you? If you truly call upon the name of the Lord with your heart, the Bible says you're saved. If you meant it. Now, if you're just rolling it off your tongue, if you're just saying it to make mom happy or, or dad happy, or you're trying to make the husband or the wife happy, but did you really say it from the heart? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Paul is encouraging young Timothy concerning doctrine, concerning sound doctrine. The word doctrine is teachings. Charge these men. Command these men who teach different teachings. The Judaizers were teaching Jesus plus. The Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees were only teaching the law. The Gnostics, another group, they were teaching that knowledge is, is God and that knowledge is my salvation. Where's Christ? Where's Christ? And so the importance. Now look at verse 4. He continues. Nor give heed. Now, here's some of the problems that Paul was addressing uh, the early church there at Ephesus. He's speaking to young Timothy. He says, nor give heed uh, to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So some of these false teachers were teaching fables. And so Paul says, take heed, pay attention. 
Be careful when they come to you and, and they give you a myth, not what's in the Word of God. Be careful when they come to you and they tell you tales, not what's in the Word of God. Be careful when they come to you and they speak about fiction. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with using a commentary. There's nothing wrong with, you know, giving your opinion. But bottom line, what does the Word of God have to say? What does Jesus have to say? And when somebody comes with these myths, these tales, these fictions, these fables that he's speaking about, how do we test it? How do we test it? We test it by the Word of God. It is so important. Man, through the years, I've heard so many different doctrines that are out there tested by the Word of God. Now, he goes on, not only these fables, he says, don't even pay attention to endless genealogies. Now, listen to the translation. Uh, do not take heed or do not pay attention uh, to unfinished traces of one's heritage, uh, to unfinished teachings of your generations, to unfinished teachings of your genealogies. There are those people that, you know, I think my family came over on the Mayflower. Well, good. Some of us, well, listen, my background comes from Cesar Chavez. Well, good. Or your background, maybe you say Martin Luther King. Well, praise God. But I tell you what, my background now is from Christ. Your background now should be uh, from Christ. Now, in the last 10 years, listen to this. I've heard this. People have come to me. Pastor Bob. You're Hispanic, Hispanic surname. You need to go search your roots. Be careful when people come to you. I've been told, possibly, you are a Sephardic Jew. And in the Sephardic Jews, basically, these are the lines of Jews that came from Spain and Portugal. Now, my ancestry comes from Spain. But right away, they want to make you a Sephardic Jew. If you're Christian, listen. According to John chapter 3, if you're born again of the Holy Spirit, if you're born again from above, that's all you need to know. I, you know, I don't need to know if I'm from a blue blood line. I need to know that I'm from the blood line of Christ. Have I been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Now, if you're taking notes, I really want you to take these down and then look at them later. My Bible says... That I need to come to saving grace. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Doesn't matter my genealogies. Because I'll tell you what, if you really look into your genealogies, you have some creeps that were in there. We have our black sheep, you know, we don't talk about uncle so-and-so. We don't talk about aunt so-and-so. Oh, but we talk about this one. Or we talk about, hey, be careful with, you know, your claim of bloodline. Did you come? Through the precious blood of Christ. Now, here's the key. Once I come to saving grace, my Bible says that your name, my name, is written in the book. Another description in the book of life. Another description in the Lamb's book of life. You read it through the Old Testament, the New Testament. I'm going to give you some homework. Study Exodus chapter 32, verse 32 and 33. Moses speaks about this book of life. King David, in Psalm 69, verse 28. Paul speaks to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 3. But you will find it, this book of life, 
in the book of Revelation so many times. John the Beloved. If you're taking notes, you find this beautiful Lamb's Book of Life, this book of life in Revelation 3.5, Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8, Revelation 21.27. The Lamb's Book of Life. Then Paul says at the conclusion of verse 4, all these false teachers do, all they're doing is causing disputes, which is controversy, and arguments. Not godly building up faith in the body of Christ. Oh, let me talk to you about these, you know, myths. Let me talk to you about your genealogies. Does it edify the body of Christ? And people get so caught up into it. Now be careful that you desire your name written in the book of life. Well, listen, I was baptized and I was saved there at Calvary Chapel. So, you know, they have a record. Your name is written in the book of life, not in Calvary Chapel. Well, listen, I grew up in the Baptist church. I grew up in the Lutheran church. I grew up in the Presbyterian church. I grew up in the Catholic church. Right now, if you go to St. Joseph's Catholic Church in uh, La Puente, California, I was baptized there. I made my communion there. I made my confirmation there. And Mary and I were married there. And that's all good. But is your name written in the book of life? Imagine that your name is written in all these, you know, ledgers at all these various churches. Now, sometimes you people come into our church and they'll come up, Pastor Bob, we want to be members of Calvary Chapel. I go, good. You're welcome. And they say, well, we want to bring our letter of intent from our last church. I said, well, you know, give the letter of intent to Pastor Jeff because I don't need it. <laughs> and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not being flippant. But I asked them, is your name written in the book of life? That's all I care about. Is your name written in the book of life? What, but you don't understand. I've been in that ministry for 25 years. Praise God. And maybe you sold a lot of enchiladas there, but praise God. <laughs> is your name written in the book of life? And so imagine what Paul was dealing with. He goes on. Look at verse 4, verse 5 now. He says, now, the purpose of the commandment this is the whole purpose of the gospel message. The purpose of the commandment is love. And not just any love, but love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. I like this. So Paul's encouragement to Timothy. Here's the commandment. The word commandment, here's the charge, Timothy. Here's the mandate. The purpose of our preaching, the purpose of our lives now in Christ Jesus is his love. The word is agapeo, agape love. Not eros love, not phileo love, not sturgio love, but agape love. This divine love that I receive, that you receive when I come to saving grace, when you come to saving grace. Let this love of Christ come from a pure heart. Listen, let it come from a cleansed heart. My heart was evil before I came to Christ. Your heart was evil before you came to Christ. In fact, the Bible says your heart was hard. Your heart, your, your, your heart was evil. It was corroded, uh, callous. That was the word I'm trying to grasp. And God comes into my life and he cleanses it. It's no longer a dark heart. It's no longer a callous heart. But he gives me a pure heart through the born-again experience. Now, am I perfect? No. But I am forgiven. Come with a pure heart in Christ. 
Let it come from, listen to the word he uses here, sincere faith. Let it come from faith that's sincere, not hypocritical faith. I think about the years that I was in church, and I basically was hypocritical. I, I did the routine. We all know the routine. And we go to church to please mom. We go to church to please dad. We go to church because the family goes. We go to church because I don't want to be called a heathen. But do I have a relationship with God? There was about a six-year span. I was about uh, 15 years old. And, you know, there was about a six-year span. I wasn't going to church with mom. I mean, you know, you get to that age, right? You don't go to church with your parents. But my mom was a stickler. You got to go to church. Okay, mom, I'm going to church. And as long as I brought mom a bulletin, she thought I was going to church. And so I'd drive my bicycle up there. I'd go to the sacristy, and, and I'd get myself a bulletin, and then I'd go play. There was a park right there by our church. And then when i get home, mom said, did you go to church? Yes, sir. Look, mom, here's a bulletin. And I'd mark a few things down, underline a few things. What was the gospel about this morning, mijo? Jesus? Oh, okay. <laughs> you see, that's not going to get you into the kingdom of God. And so we're so hypocritical. We see faith uh, that's sincere, not hypocritical. Now, Paul often spoke about hypocrisy. He's not using the word hypocrisy here. But he says sincere faith, not fake, not hypocritical. And so in the times of the Greeks, they would have the theaters. And you would go see a play. You would go see this play, and basically they use masks. And so the actor would come out, and it was a, a happy part. And so he would put on the smiley face. And then the next scene, uh, the actor would come out. It has to be a drawn-out face, a sad face. And so he would change. And see, too many people like to wear the hypocritical mask in church. I hope and I pray, and I've shared this before, that what you see Pastor Bob in the pulpit, what you see Pastor Jeff when he comes up, or Pastor Jay when he comes up and teaches, or anybody else in our fellowship that would come and teach the Word of God here, that the same thing that you see on a Sunday morning, the same thing you would see if you were to go to our homes, if you were to go to the picnic with us, if you were to go out to dinner with us, you know, contrary to, to, to what some people believe, we don't speak King James all the time. <laughs> We're just human beings. But that they would see Christ in us. And so the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a saved heart, and from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, not a fake or hypocritical faith. Now, verses eight, 6, 7, and 8, Paul speaks to the religious sect. Those that were, some were undermining the teachings of Paul. And this religious sect basically were the Judaizers, the Gnostics, the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. And then there was another group that John the Baptist belonged to, and they were called the Essenes. Now what's interesting about the Essenes, they were a very strict group, and yet they copied so many of the Old Testament books. And back in the Qumran Valley, they found all these clay pots, 
1948, they found these Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they looked at the book of Isaiah, I think there was one grammar portion of the book that was off, like a comma, a period. But it was intact, and it was so important. But notice now that Paul begins to describe the religious sect, those that were coming in and undermining. And so he begins in verse 6, from which some having strayed, he's speaking of the religious sect, having strayed, having turned aside to idle talk. The King James says that they strayed or they swerved. They have erred, the King James says, in the Greek. They have turned to idle talk. Now, the King James here is precious. The word idle talk speaks of vain jangling, or the translation in the Greek is empty babble, gibberish. Their empty babble was Jesus plus the law, or stay with the law, period. And so how many times through the years we get a new convert, it's taken them forever to really come to saving grace, because basically, I've been a Lutheran all my life. Basically, I've been a Presbyterian all my life. Basically, you know, I've been a church of God. I've been a church of Christ. Some of them might even say in the generations now, well, I've been part of Calvary Chapel. Or as I used to say, I'm a Catholic. I was born Catholic. I'm going to die Catholic. But are we born again of the Holy Spirit? Have we come uh, to saving grace? Now, verse 7, he continues. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor the things which they affirm. And the word to affirm, the things that they know. Be careful when we're so staunch in my belief system or your belief system. Again, what does the word of God have to say? Their desire here in verse 7, to be known as teachers of the law of Moses... Yet they do not know what they are talking about, Paul saying, even though they affirm, they're saying, I know these things. I know these things from a youth. They would say, because I'm a teacher of the law. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down this verse. In Matthew 15, Jesus often taught in parables. And in parables, he would bring forth the storyline. And many times the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders did not understand the teachings because they were so strict in the law. So in Matthew chapter 15, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to read one verse. Jesus is teaching on what defiles a man. And he says, it is not what goes into the mouth. And so in the religious sect, the meats, the milks, the dietary laws, it's not what goes into uh, the mouth. But then Jesus says, but what defiles a man is what comes out of his mouth. You call yourself religious, and yet they were hypocritical. They called themselves religious, yet they lied. They called themselves religious, and yet they were cursing. James tells us in chapter 3, this tongue can cause a forest fire. This tongue, I curse God, and yet I went to church in the morning, and I can praise God. Be careful, church. Out of this mouth can come blasphemies, false doctrines. So now listen to Jesus' words. 
In Matthew 15, verse 14, you can take the note and read it later. Let them alone. Speaking of the religious sect, Jesus said, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Jesus' teachings, listen, he often dealt with the heart, the issues of man in the heart. But these religious sect were more concerned of their deeds, their actions. How do I look? How do I act? What did I say? Was it right? You say one thing, you do another. It's very dangerous to be religious. Now, stay with me. Some of you maybe never heard this, but religion is man-made. Religion is man-made. Basically, study all the religions of the world. They are man-made. You see, being a born-again Christian is not a religion, but it's a relationship. And you see, a relationship is God sending his son down to this earth to become the propitiation or the mercy seat for me, for you. The complete sacrifice. And Jesus died to give me life, to give you life. And then I come into a relationship, not religion. I love when I'm sharing with somebody and they go, Pastor, I hate religion. I said, so do I. I hate religion. Why do you say that? Because religion can't save you. But a relationship can save you by accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, verse 8, he comes to this little conclusion concerning the religious sect. But we know, listen, we know, Paul says, that the law is good if, I like when he includes the word if, it's conditional, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Some of these religious sect were using it for their own glory, for their own kingdom. There's nothing wrong with the law. But the law was pointing to the cross. In, in the book of Galatians, Paul said that the law was a schoolmaster that was preparing you for the cross. Now, in verse 8, Paul says, now we know. You know by experience. You know by the Word of God. You know because the Holy Spirit has taught you. So he says, we know. How do you know? Through the Holy Spirit teaching you the Word of God. And what do we know? That the law is good. According with God's moral goodness, not man's goodness. Not religion, but a relationship. And then look at the conclusion of verse 8. If one, if one uses it lawful, this one, if one man... One woman, primarily a teacher of the law, but also the Christian. If we use the word of God lawfully in its lawful place in the gospel teaching, namely, not as means of righteous man, aiming a higher perfection than by the gospel itself, these religious men uh, perverted the use to which the false teachers pointed to themselves. You see, a religious man likes to be looked at. A religious person says, look at me. A religious person says, do you see the, you know, the halo? You see the, the dress code that I have? You see the Pharisee scribes and Sadducees, especially the Pharisees. They used to use these long flowing gowns, and when they would come into the marketplace, they would draw them in, because God forbid that my gown would touch a Gentile. In fact, there's an incident when Jesus exhorts him because he says, you strain at a gnat. Now, how many times we've been out there walking or, or whatever, and you're talking a mile a minute, and then something flies in? 
and we don't like it, but there's nothing you can do. It's in there. Just count it as protein. Don't worry about it. But the religious sect, when something flew in, they began to cough and spit and hack because it was unclean. And so the religious man says, look at me. It hasn't changed in 1950-plus years later. We have those in television. We have those on the radio. Not all of them. We have those groups that are called the faith uh, teachers today. Hey, look what I have. I'm rich. You should be rich. God healed me. He should heal you. You know what's interesting? You read in Scripture, especially in the Proverbs and in the Psalms, God dealt a lot with the poor. He dealt a lot with the widows, the orphans. He dealt a lot with the down and out. Yes, there's rich in the scriptures, but not everybody was rich. If, if your faith and prosperity doctrine works, take it over here to what is. Go into the colonias and go tell these people that live in cardboard houses, you too can be rich. It's not going to go very far, is it? And so it's important that we see this. And so the purpose of the gospel, listen, is to awaken the sense of sin in the ungodly, especially self. When I read the prayers of King David in the Old Testament, we're studying the life of King David on Wednesday nights, and David was always quick to pray for his own sin and the sins of Israel. This Wednesday night, David is going to be caught in an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And then he has her husband, Uriah, killed. David thinks it's cool. I'm the king. And then God sends Nathan the prophet. And basically, David's sin is exposed. And you're going to follow that sequence. Read Psalm 51. That was called the repented psalm of King David. So David asked for forgiveness. Now... The religious sect was angry at Jesus because he had brought in a new doctrine. But they didn't see it. If you're taking notes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but I have come to fulfill. Jesus had come to complete the law. You see, the law was the schoolmaster who's going to take you to the cross. And so Jesus became the complete sacrifice. They would celebrate in Exodus chapter 12 of the Passover lamb. Jesus is that Passover lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. When John the Baptist was baptizing and the disciples were coming to him, they said, whom should we follow? And just then, Jesus was coming into the horizon. And Jesus, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Now, let's continue here. He's finished talking to the religious sect. And now he continues to encourage Timothy. Verse 9, knowing this, Timothy, you should know this, Timothy. You're a Christian. We should know this this morning. We're Christians. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man or a righteous woman, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers. 
So Paul brings this portion. What was the law for? The law was to expose our sin. Now let me break these down for you because they're very powerful. And so he begins here. The law was not for the righteous. The law was not for those living right with God, those that had come to saving grace, or the innocent, or the just. But the law, listen, was made for the lawless. The word lawless, the law was made for the wicked man, the wicked woman, those that transgress. The law was made for the insubordinate, those that were disobedient, those that were unruly. The law was made for the ungodly, those that were irreverent or impious ones. The law was made, and we understand this, the law was made for sinners. Those who missed the mark. The word sinners is harmatia, and it was an archery term. And so when you would shoot your arrow and you missed your target, they would say harmatia, and it meant miss the mark. So when we sin, we miss the mark. And so he says, the law was made for the unholy. Who are the unholy but the wicked ones, the unrighteous? And then he says, the law was made for the profane. Now listen to the word profane. The heathenish nations. That's who the law was made for. The law was made for murderers, those who killed their own dad, their own father, or those who killed their own moms, their own mother. And the law was made for the manslayer. The law was made for those if you say, well, I, I didn't kill my mom and dad, but I killed others. Anybody that took somebody else's life, that's who the law was made for. Now, he continues. He goes into the sexual sense. In verse 10, the law was made for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. He comes into the area of the courts, the civil authorities. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, that's what the law was made for. Now, let's do some translations here, too. The law was made for fornicators. The translation, the law was made for whoremongers, male prostitutes, those having sex outside of the marriage bed. Now, here is a politically incorrect word to use today. I basically could get in trouble. You're not to use the word sodomite. And in fact, some of your new translations, they change it. But the law was made for sodomites. Listen. The law was made for homosexuals that defile themselves with mankind. The law was made for kidnappers. They steal and then they enslave them. We see that today. We turn the news on, we hear of somebody that was put into a, a basement portion of their house and they were locked there for 10, 20 years. It's not unheard of. But it also meant those that were enslaved then. Slavery that was part of the early church. And then we go into the civil authorities. The law was made for liars. The word is falsifiers. The law was made for perjurers, those who lie under oath in a court of law. You hand in the Bible, your right hand up. No, I didn't do it, and they're lying. The law was made for any other thing that is contrary, anything that opposes healthy teaching, healthy instruction. Doctrine is so precious, church. Doctrine is so pure. And yet man tries to change it. Now, I learned this in shepherd school many years ago. There's a threefold purpose in how you determine what a doctrine is. Number one, did Jesus teach it? And did he practice it in the Gospels? Secondly, 
Was it taught and was it practiced in the epistles? And thirdly, was it taught, was it practiced in the book of Acts? And that determines a doctrine. It, it is so easy. It is so simple when you think about it. And so these men, these women were coming in and undermining the teachings of, of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Be careful when we add to it. Be careful when we take away from it. Now we come to the conclusion, verse 11 this morning. And he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed, and I like what Paul says, to my trust. You see, the gospel has been uh, committed to my trust. But listen to this. The gospel has also been committed to your trust. Not just the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the leadership of the church. But we have a responsibility. And so Paul says here in verse 11, this glorious gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ has been blessed by God and was committed or commissioned to my trust. Not just Paul, not just Timothy, not just Titus, but for the last 2,000 years, this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ has been commissioned and entrusted to each one of us we have a responsibility not only to read it, to study it, but to make application. Back in shepherd school, we learn uh, the threefold purpose of the Word of God. When I look at the Word, when you look at the Word, number one, it's called observation. And that's what we've been doing here this morning. Observation. What is Paul writing to young Timothy about? Secondly, interpretation, so we interpret the Word of God. And here's the one that is mostly missed. We look at the Word of God, and it's called observation, and then we interpret the Word of God. But here's the third aspect. There must be application. There has to be application. You see, in the old days when I first got saved, I'd read something out of Scripture and I'd say, wow, this is good. This is for my wife. She needs to hear it. And then the Holy Spirit would say, Bob, uh, that's for you. No, 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 no. You don't understand. My wife needs to hear this. This is for my mom. This is for my dad. This is for my brother. I used to love to do that. Ed, come here. Read this. You're in trouble. And the Lord said, Bob, wait a minute. Before you preach it, before you teach it, listen, you have to live it. The Word of God is powerful, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts. And so many times, you say, oh, that's for my husband, or that's for the wife. No, it's for you. And so we look at observation, interpretation. Make sure there's application. And so Paul's encouragement to young Timothy, I want to leave you with this last verse. In, in the book of James, chapter 1, in verse 22, there's that whole scenario there. And James speaks about not just being a, a, a doer or a hero of the word, but you have to be a doer also. And I think too many times we like to listen, but do we do what the Bible says? And so James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. You're going to deceive your own self. Don't just be a hearer. Don't just be a doer of the word, but be a hearer also. And so it is so important that we would listen as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And so Paul is going to be dealing some more 
uh, with Timothy and the church there at Ephesus. This whole book concerning, you know, the doctrine of the church, the conduct of the church, how we act, what do we do? And so remember those that were coming in undermining the teachings. Let's stand and we'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. Isaiah reminds us that your word will not come back void. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. And Father, we've heard the gospel this morning. We've heard the word of God. Uh, we were encouraged that Paul said you need to come to saving grace. Not, not religion, but a relationship. And Lord, I'd like to give that opportunity before we close. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. They've never made that commitment to Christ. Not to Pastor Bob or not to Calvary Chapel. But that they would make that commitment to Christ. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to take this opportunity. And we're not here to embarrass you, but right there where you're at, I want to say a simple prayer of faith with you. God needs to see your hand, not my hand, not your hand, but God needs to see it. And so this morning, if you need Christ, if you're not sure, I would encourage you to come to Saving Grace. Would you raise your hand? I'll say a simple prayer with you. Anybody here this morning, you need to make that commitment. I see your hand in the back. Praise the Lord. Anybody else would like to receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior? Indicate by raising your hand. I'll say a simple prayer. Anybody before we close. Praise the Lord then. Let's pray for the gentleman that raised his hand there in the back. Father, I thank you so much. As conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Lord, you put us on this earth to worship you. Oftentimes people ask, well, why was I born? I didn't ask to be born. You were placed on this earth to worship God. And those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I can't do that unless I first come uh, to saving grace. Lord, thank you for this man that raised his hand. We ask you, Lord, to forgive him of his sins, past, present, and future. We ask you, Lord, to wash him, as we mentioned earlier, in that precious blood of the Lamb. We ask you, Lord, to come into his life now, tabernacle within him, Lord, as he accepts you, Lord. Fill him with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Give him a hunger and a thirst for your word, Lord, that from this day forward, he will never be the same. And so, Father, we thank you. And, Lord, if there's anybody else they didn't make that raising of the hand, but maybe in their hearts, they need to get right with you, Lord. And so, Father, speak to us. Encourage us, Lord. We pray for the offerings this morning, Lord. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. Lord, we do pray for the, uh, the gifts that will be given. We pray for the, the tithes that will be given. We pray, Lord, uh, the widow's mites that would be given. We thank you, Lord. Bless your people as they've come now, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name. We pray and we all agree by saying amen.